English translation. After completing the sacrifice, Lord Ramachandra, whose lotus feet were sometimes pierced by thorns when he lived in Dandakaranya, placed those lotus feet in the hearts of those who always think of him. Then he entered his own abode, the Vaikuntha planet beyond the Brahmajyoti. Please repeat. After completing the sacrifice, Lord Ramachandra, whose lotus feet were sometimes pierced by thorns when he lived in Dandakaranya, placed those lotus feet in the hearts of those who always think of him. Then he entered his own abode, the Vaikuntha planet, beyond the Brahmajyoti. Purport. The lotus feet of the Lord are always a subject matter for meditation for devotees. Sometimes when Lord Ramachandra wandered in the forest of Dandakaranya, thorns pricked his lotus feet. The devotees, upon thinking of this, would faint. The Lord does not feel pain or pleasure from any action or reaction of this material world, but the devotees cannot tolerate even the pricking of the Lord's lotus feet by a thorn. This was the attitude of the gopis when they thought of Krishna wandering in the forest with pebbles and grains of sand pricking his lotus feet. This tribulation in the heart of a devotee cannot be understood by karmis, jnanis, or yogis. The devotees who could not tolerate even thinking of the Lord's lotus feet being pricked by a thorn were again put into tribulation by thinking of the Lord's disappearance. For the Lord had to return to his abode after finishing his pastimes in this material world. <clears throat> the word Atma Jyoti is significant. The Brahma Jyoti, which is greatly appreciated by jnanis, or monistic philosophers, who desire to enter into it for liberation, is nothing but the rays of the Lord's body. Yasya Prabha, Prabhavato, Jagadandakoti, Kotishvashesha Vasudadi Vibhuti Binam, Tad Brahmanishkalamananta Rupam, Excuse me, Ashesha Bhutam, Govindamadi Purusham, Tamahambajami. I worship Govinda, the primeval Lord, who is endowed with great power. The glowing effulgence of his transcendental form is the impersonal Brahman, which is absolute, complete, and unlimited, and which displays the varieties of countless planets with their different opulences in millions and millions of universes. Brahma Samhita 5.40 the Brahma Jyoti is the beginning of the spiritual world. And beyond Brahma Jyoti are the Vaikuntha planets. In other words, the Brahma Jyoti stays outside the Vaikuntha planets, just as the sunshine stays outside the sun. To enter the sun planet, one must go through the sunshine. Similarly, when the Lord or his devotees enter the Vaikuntha planets, they go through the Brahma Jyoti. The jnanis or monistic philosophers because of their impersonal conception of the Lord, cannot enter the Vaikuntha planets. But they also cannot stay eternally in the Brahma Jyoti. Thus, after some time, they fall again to this material world. Aruhya, Krichtrena, Parangpadam Tata, Patantiadho, Nadrita Yushmad, and Angraya, Bhagavatam 10.2.32. The Vaikuntha planets are covered by Brahma Jyoti, and therefore one cannot properly understand what those Vaikuntha planets are unless one is a pure devotee. Omagyana 
Timanandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshur Omilitam Jaina Tasmai Shri Gurevenama Shira Prabhupada Ki Jai Hare Krishna everyone Very happy to be here with you this morning My job now is to keep you awake for another 20 minutes To stimulate your appetite before breakfast And to perhaps say something that you may find remotely interesting Well a lady wrote to me And she said can you tell me what is Brahman realization. This was just a couple of days ago. And uh, she'd heard it from somewhere. And I said, yes. I said, Brahman realization is the mist on the mountain of God. It was a very short reply. (laughs) I said, it's the mist on the mountain of God that stops you seeing the trees and the flowers. She said, thank you very much. (laughs) No need for long explanations. Prabhupada gives... Uh, several, um, Prabhupada was always giving very um, colorful, natural analogies and metaphors and similes. And uh, a good job if you know the difference between an analogy, a metaphor, and a simile. Go look it up. But um, through creating word pictures, Prabhupada took the Siddhanta, which, you know, you could, you could, I have one volume at home. It's it's by someone called Baladeva Dibhushana. And it's his Govinda Basya that he wrote as a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. And it's the thickest book in my, on my bookshelf. Very thick, like that. You know, over 1200 pages. So you can either read that, or you can, you can put the Siddhanta into a very small package. And that's called the Sutra. A Sutra is something which says, Exactly what you need to say creates a picture in the mind, helps you to understand a complicated thing, and does so in the shortest possible number of words as a sutra. So it takes a huge amount of intelligence to create a sutra. To say something concisely takes great intelligence. Prabhupada said that on a morning walk. He said, yes, only a very intelligent person can say something very complicated in a few words. Sometimes people try to do that. They try to do that. Like this, uh, this 60s spiritual icon. He went into meditation and all his followers were around him. And uh, at the end, he was going to tell them you know, the secret of the universe in a few words in his sutra. So he came out of his trance, which lasted many hours, and he said, the universe is the smell of petrol. And everybody was, wow, wow, man, did you hear that? That was so deep. (laughs) Did you understand it? Yeah, I just think I understood it. It's kind of like, yeah, I'll give a class about it later. This is not a sutra. This is not a sutra. It's the ramblings of a madman. (laughs) It's the ramblings of a madman. So people, just because they say something very short, doesn't mean they've captured the essence of something. Similarly, a person can give a seven-hour class. A person can give a seven-hour class, a five-hour class, a four-hour class, and still really not have got the idea across. I've done it many times. I've given a four-hour class. Give a four-hour class, and I was talking and talking and talking, 
And I could see actually the devotees aren't becoming more enlivened because this is just cerebral. So um, to get something over in a short uh, sutra, there must be absolute conviction in the person who's speaking it. There must be realization. And there must be a great desire on the part of that person who's speaking to really get the message over um, to you. Not to entertain you, not to tell you stories, not to tell you jokes, but to really get the message over to you. And not only that, Prabhupada says, the other thing that you must do is that the example that you choose must be as close as possible to the actual fact the natural example that you choose must be as close as possible to the reality of the situation that you're conveying. So Prabhupada was a, a, a great treasure of these natural examples. And uh, just recently uh, uh, I, I, I put together a small, small slideshow of uh, Prabhupada's natural uh, examples. It was to show. So um, I'll test you on a few. I'll say that I'll create the picture, the sutra that Prabhupada gave us, and you shout out, okay, this will keep you awake, you shout out the, um, the siddhanta, the part of the siddhanta that Prabhupada is trying to create. Okay? You ready? Okay. Uh, air moving over a rose bed. Hmm? That's right, the soul. Yes, the soul picks up conceptions of life just as air moves up over a rose bed and picks up the fragrance of the rose. Similarly, the air moves on and it goes over a dung heap and it picks up the smell of the dung. But the air always remains air. It's just picking up the fragrances as it goes. Similarly, the soul, life after life, is taking it, picking up the fragrance of different bodies. In one life, the soul thinks he's a rose, and someone <laughs> thinks he's a, you know, a dung. <laughs> a good person, bad person. The soul always remains pure. Okay? You getting it? Okay. Uh, sun and sunshine. There's at least three that I could think of. Sun and sunshine. Okay, very good. You were listening to the purport. Is he right? Saying same but quality, quality. Ah, okay. Yes. Yes, that's a good one. The sun is in my room. Well, no, the sun isn't in your room. The sun is 18 million degrees centigrade. If the sun is in your room, you would not be here. So, uh, the sun is in my room. No, the rays of the sun are in my room. So you have the rays of the sun, but the, yes, very good. Who can think? Hmm? Yes. The energetic and the energy. Prabhupada also says Radha and Krishna are like the sun and the sunshine. Who else is like the sun and the sunshine? The soul and God. The souls are like, yes, the jivas are like the sunshine. See, if you have these pictures, if you have these pictures in your head, then uh, you'll always be able to preach, even if you can't remember any, remember any verses. 
<laughs> if you just have a series of pictures in your head, then the Siddhanta will always come to you. Please just make sure you get the pictures in the right order. Because it makes a lot of sense if you tell people the philosophy in the right order. Otherwise you go from Krishna to Brahma to, you know, they never went to the moon, to the Jiva, to um, the Ganges, to the Himalayas, to and people are all over the shop. So you tell them in the right in the right sequence. Anyway, in this uh, particular verse here, we're being introduced to the example of the sun and the sunshine, and we're being introduced to the example of the uh, uh, the Brahma Jyoti, the understanding of the Brahma Jyoti. Now, um, many people, um, that's as far as they can go to understand that. Uh, God is impersonal seems to them a more attractive idea, especially these days, because we live in a world in which there are many different religions. See, it was all very easy when religion was tribal. You know, it was very easy when religion was tribal. If you're in North America, you worship a god known as Manitou. Okay, because that's the Cherokee tribe, the Apache tribe, the great white spirit. You you worship that God. If you live in South America, you worship a certain type of deity with a certain name and certain type of rituals. And then if you go into this part of the world, you can either worship um, uh, Thor or Odin. They're just building a temple now to Thor. Did you know? It's catching on. Whether it's something that the Hare Krishna movement has done, I don't know, but paganism is making a comeback. So in Scandinavia, they're building a big temple to Thor, costing a lot of money. They're going to the, they're reviving paganism because there's so many people who are into it. Paganism was smashed by um, Christianity and people are saying, well, actually now we live in a post-Christian Europe. Can't we just worship the gods that we choose? So these are older these gods, you know, were around a long time before Christianity got to Europe. Let's worship them. Then if you go to the Middle East, if you go to Arabia, it's Allah. If you go to India, then it's Krishna or Buddha. Or, then, then it's easy. You go all the way around the world. Each tribe has got their different name for God. And that's easy. But now the world is very complex because it's all mixed up. It's all mixed up. What are we going to do? You know, now we have to sort out each other's deities. Now we have to live with each other. Uh, so you you don't eat that type of animal, and you don't eat that type of animal. You put something on your head when you go into your place of worship. You take something off your head when you go into the place of worship. You bow down. You stand up. You sing songs. You let the priest sing songs. This is all getting very mixed up. I don't think we're ever going to live together. So then, in this modern, postmodern Europe, because we have seen in the Second World War, we've seen people uh, fight each other uh, over various ideologies, and we do want peace. We had the First World War, we had the Second World War, and really it hasn't stopped. And religions, they don't cause the wars, but people use them as the fault line to divide. Because war is like, violence and war are like an earthquake that smashes human society. But an earthquake or a volcano, it always or an earthquake, always comes through a fault line where the crust of the earth is weak. 
So where religion is, and where the join between two religions are, that's always weak. That's a weak spot in the social fabric of the world. So if there's an earthquake due to the modes of material nature, it will always break up during that part. So there's a story about Akbar, Akbar the Great. He wasn't that great, but he called himself that, Akbar the Great. He was the ruler of all of India, and India at that time went out all the way to Afghanistan and all the way over to Burma. Akbar the Great, so he was the chief. And there were many different religions in his kingdom, and one day he called for his minister, and he said, uh, he said, I, how am I to understand? He said, there's so many different religions. How am I going to deal with this? So he said, well, your majesty, um, I'll show you. So he called one man in. One man, he was wearing a turban. And uh, he said, to, he asked the man, he, says, he said, excuse me, your majesty, let me ask him a few questions. So he said to him, what is this on your head? What do you call it? He said, uh, uh, turban. He was, like very, he was quite shocked to be standing in front of the king that morning. So he said, Durban. He said, okay, take, your, take it off. He said, okay, now put it around your shoulders. He said, now what do you call it? He said, Chadar. He said, oh, very good. Okay, now put it around your neck. He said, what do you call it? Galavastra. We would call a scarf. Okay, now put it around your waist. What do you call it? He said, Kamarband. Kamarband. Okay, now put it around your legs. What do you call the cloth? Dhoti. <laughs> he said, so what is that cloth? He said, there's only one cloth, but known by many names. Your majesty, <laughs> there is only one God. But according to how he was perceived, he has many names. And the king said, thank you very much. He said, you're a very wise man. <laughs> Here's some coins. <laughs> now, people, they would grab, people who, uh, don't want to, um, we must understand that, uh, 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 this is a very nice example, of course, and you can tell this wherever you go, but people will say, aha, aha. Therefore, Krishna is just one name of God and it's one way of looking at God. But the ultimate is the one God of no names. You see? See what they're doing? They say they are the one God of no names. So we have to rise above the God with names to get the God with no names. Well, um, this makes intellectual sense up to a point. Makes intellectual sense up to a point. No more fighting. We just say God is one, and we can't say anything about him. He's a mystery. He, she, or it is a mystery. Now we can all be happy because he has no name and no form. But that is ultimately to deny the very existence. That is like saying, oh, the piece of cloth has no uh, ultimate uh, purpose. Remember, it was a turban. That was the ultimate. It was the ultimate. And then it comes down into all these different forms. So similarly, there is an ultimate. Now, people have argued for many, many centuries but God having no form. This is called aniconic, aniconic or impersonalist. And it's the greatest philosophical struggle in the history of the world. Greatest philosophical struggle in the history of the world. Is it that we superimpose a form on God 
in which case the form of Krishna and the form of Ram is anthropomorphic. In other words, God is shapeless and we've simply superimposed a form on him in order to better understand him because we live in a world of names and we like to have names and we like to have forms. Or is it that we are ourselves as human beings that we are theomorphic? Theomorphic means we're made in the image of God. Well, I think if you look at any religion, originally the original teachings say that we are made in the image of God and God has a face and God has a personality. Now, the different religions of the world, they didn't come by chance. They were created by the modes of material nature working on the original knowledge of the Vedas. So if you trace everything back before Islam, before Christianity, before Buddhism, you go back, 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 all you will come to is the Vedas. This is just historical. You just come to the Vedas. You just will. And most scholars of religion will admit. And if we go to the very earliest Vedas, the Rig Veda, what do we find? We find a description of the place to which Lord Ramachandra in this verse is said to have gone. Okay? Om Tad Vishnu Paramam Padam Sada Pashanti Surayo Diviva Chakshura Atatam Those who have Diviva Chakshura who have divine vision, those suras, those people who've got no, they don't want to project any images on God, they don't want to engage in any mental projection at all, they just want to receive knowledge of God as it has been given by God, who, let's not forget, is the expert on God anyway. Those persons can see the supreme paramam padam. Paramam padam means, paramam means the highest, padam means the highest state of existence. So they can see that place. That is Sri uh, Vaikuntha Dham. So according to the Rig Veda, Vaikuntha means, just in this picture here, we see all of the spiritual world. See all of um, Godhead. So, um, therefore, um, this becomes a bit of a problem because the majority of people will always be um, pagans as the majority of people will always be pagans they will always be worshipping the gods and below them are people who worship trees and mountains and rivers without an understanding of the gods behind them then there will be persons who worship the gods then there's persons who gravitate towards the uh, the impersonal conception of Godhead and then there's persons who try to understand the personality of Godhead. So there's a hierarchy of different conceptions. And wherever you go, whatever religion you analyze, you'll find that hierarchy. You'll, find that you, you'll see that people who are very much in the mode of goodness, who have grown up with a particular religious conception, that religious conception is... Uh, of God as a person and entering a spirit of loving service uh, with that God. And those that are troubled by material problems, they will worship the gods, plural, in order to get different benefits. Now both of those are recommended by Krishna in the same book. When we see the Vedas, we find that 
um, we find that everybody should worship the gods. In the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that everyone should worship the gods. Later on in the Bhagavad Gita, and later on in the Upanishads, which is part of the same Vedas, we find that those who worship the gods are foolish. Well, wait a minute. In the same book, on the one hand you're saying that they should worship the gods, and on the other hand you're saying that they are foolish if they do. Same scripture. Same book of guidance. Because there are different conceptions, and according to that conception that you have, you're meant to work with that conception until the time when that conception changes for something higher. And then at the moment your conception changes for something higher, God himself within you will guide you to find a teacher who will help you to move higher. In the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, Krishna has a very nice conversation with Uddhava, and he tells him three aspects of finding a guru, because Uddhava has asked the question. And in the beginning Krishna says that... um, in the beginning, one's mind can be one's own guru. Your own mind can be a guru. Because you're sorting it all out yourself. He hmm? second, is that everything in the world can be your guru. Because if you're looking for God, God will come looking for you and will speak to you from all different angles of vision. And then he tells them a story about the, twen- the, um, the Brahmin who has 24 gurus. He said, eventually, he says, you find a sadhu in which all the qualities that you've learned from different gurus reside. So in this 11th canto discussion with Uddhava, he finished his, his dialogue that began with chapter 4, verse 34 of Bhagavad Gita, Tadvidi Pranipatena. So he finishes that sequence. So for the devotee, the devotee is someone who's gone all the way on the motorway. Uh, and I don't, I forget whether this is a, a Srila Prabhupada example. But example I often use is that you're going along the motorway and there's places that you can stop. And according to where you stop on that motorway, you will, uh, if you choose to stay there, that will be the end of your journey. So in the same way, the path of yoga is very long. If you stop at the motorway services called jnana, you'll be a jnana yogi and that's where you'll stop. And most people don't realize that the ceiling on their conception of Godhead is sort of self-imposed. You can't break through that ceiling until you break through the modes of material nature. And modes of material nature are a very strong taskmaster. They will smash everybody. Prabhupada gave an example in, uh, uh, he said, uh, just like a football, he said, the boys are kicking the football, and the football is flying through the air. And he said, while the ball is flying through the air, the ball is thinking, oh, now I am flying, now I am enjoying. He said, then he is falling, and then again he is being kicked. So this, we are kicked by material nature, as we're kicked, as we're arcing through the sky, we think, oh, now I'm enjoying myself. And then we fall, and then we're kicked again. But material nature will reduce you, reduce you, reduce you, until you come to the point where you cannot do anything but surrender 
to the Lord. So in this lifetime, it's a very good principle to continue the surrender that is inevitable. I had to laugh the other day. There was a, there was a story in the news about a lady who was the son of the chief executive of Korean Airways. And she'd taken a flight and the plane was taxiing down the runway and they were serving peanuts. And uh, she was the top executive. And the way it works in Korea, it's like each company, there's a different dynasty, like a Samsung dynasty in a, you know, I don't know, it's Hyundai from, you know, there's different different dynasties. So she was in the Korean Airways dynasty, big family, all major posts in the company controlled by a member of the family. So um, she started screaming at a member of the cabin crew that, um, you know, you shouldn't serve me peanuts in a bag. Don't you know who I am? You should at least put the peanuts on a plate for me because I'm the daughter of the person who pays your wages. And uh, eventually she was screaming so much that the poor chap, she forced him to kneel down in front of her in the aisle of the plane. And then she, (laughs) out of fear of losing his job, and she said, um, you must, uh, you know, this pilot must turn the plane around and go back to the uh, airport. I'm so offended. (laughs) So yesterday she was sentenced to a year in jail. (laughs) And as she came into the court to be uh, sentenced, as they do in Korea and Japan, she, you know, she made a very low bow in front of the cameras and all the reporters as to show her public uh, uh, penitence for this act of extreme uh, arrogance. Um, people do get taken away, and um, when you reach a very high platform in life, and then you fall to a very low platform, this is known as yoga brashta. Yoga brashta, you were up and now you're down. And this happens as many times as you want it to happen. As many times as you want it to happen. It'll happen over and over again. See, samsara isn't just about changing bodies. It's about being given the opportunity to change your consciousness. And the consciousness is, I am, as the song goes, I am the one and only. I am the center of the universe. And basically, the function of everybody around me is to serve me. That's the consciousness that will keep you in the cycle of birth and death over and over and over again. Because once you start thinking like that, it doesn't stop. It can only become inflated. And eventually, you'll be forcing people to kneel in front of you in fear of losing their job and their family maintenance and reputation and everything. But material nature... Uh, will take you by the nose, Prabhupada said, and will force you and will take everything away from you until you've got nothing and then maybe then you'll have a chance at being uh, humble. You see? So um, this humility, Lord, because we're talking about the feet of Lord Ramachandra, this humility is actually the uh, 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 key that opens the gate to uh, the uh, uh, spiritual world. Lord Ramachandra says this when he's teaching in the uh, Ramayan. If you can become free from pride, then the gate of Vaikuntha will swing open for you. And um, 
This is uh, also spoken to Yudhishthir. Yudhishthir was answering questions put to him by the Yaksha, this invisible spirit. And he was asking many questions. You know the most famous question, what is the most amazing thing? Well, it wasn't that one. It was another question. He said, what is it that when you you get rid of it, um, you know, if, 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 you, if you get rid of this thing, um, uh, the whole world will appreciate you. The whole world will love you. And Yudhishthira said, pride. Pride. And what, what is it that if you uh, uh, abandon it, uh, you will feel the highest happiness? He said, desires. And what is it if you, if you leave it, uh, will bring to you everything? He said, anger. So pride, desires, which are unlimited, which means greed. So pride, greed, anger. If you, if you can abandon these things. So the whole function of material nature is to make you a reformed character. To help you come to the point where, actually I have nothing. And at that point, you begin your spiritual journey. If you go further, then you begin to understand that, actually, although I don't own the universe, there is someone who does. And then the highest pinnacle of that is to, again, think of yourself as uh, nothing, and that God is everything. And what happens in this particular mood is that the lowest part on the body of God becomes the highest part for you. That's why obeisances are a great way of making spiritual advancement because we we bow down to that which we honor and when we honor something, we bow down. We find ourselves in awe. And so um, it's very strange for those of us who come from a Western background, we're English and we've just walked into the Hare Krishna temple and all of a sudden it's all about feet. What have the Hare Krishna people got about feet? There was one um, ISKCON, uh, I won't say ISKCON guru because that's a that's an oxymoron, but it was a, a person who had some disciples who was also a member of ISKCON. And he went to a program, an event, and uh, he hadn't been there for some time and there was some, you know, a little bit of, I don't know, awe and reverence there. And his feet were washed and, uh, you know, um, people were splashing water, you know, around the room. As, as we do in a strange ritual. And there was a lot of Western guests that had been invited and they just couldn't quite grasp the deeper significance of it. And they never came again. So what is it with the Hare Krishnas and feet? You know, people are touching feet and we're talking about the feet of the Lord, the lotus feet of the Lord. And then over here we have two big feet, you know, and we're touching those feet and we're putting flowers on those feet. And the lotus feet of the, what is it? How does it go? The lotus feet is where, what, what is it, what, what do we have about feet? This whole thing about feet. But, um, uh, the point is that the, uh, uh, that feeling of submission begins with submission to the lowest point of the respected person. That's how submission begins, at the feet, at the feet of the master, at the feet of God, like that. And so, um, I wanted to read to you, because we're talking about Lord Ramachandra's feet. There was a devotee of Lord Ramachandra, 
and uh, he lived in the 14th century, the 1300s, and he wrote 1,000 poems, or a poem with 1,000 verses, on not the feet of the Lord, but the sandals of the Lord. He says, what's lower than the feet? See, I, I'm not even good enough to surrender to the feet of the Lord, but I can perhaps surrender to the sandals of the Lord. Because the sandals are so close to the Lord, they are, they are with the Lord's feet at every moment. So they must be the perfection of existence, is to be the sandals of the Lord, to have the Lord's feet on my head at all times. So he wrote a thousand verses. Would you like to hear some of them? His name, oh go on, say yes. I'm going to read them anyway, because it's, you know. So this is a, a very rough English translation. His name was uh, Vedanta Deshika. And uh, this is called the Paduka Sahasram. Paduka Sahasram. Paduka means the sandals or the clogs or the uh, the footwear of the Lord. And Sahasram like, uh, means a thousand. So he says, um, he says, uh, I salute my guru and I salute the sandals of the Lord. He said, both my guru and the sandals are attached to the feet of my Lord Ramachandra. My guru is very much attached to his feet and the sandals are attached to his feet. So he, he had a good sense of humor. So I surrendered to my guru who, like a pair of sandals, is attached to the feet of God. Then he says, uh, he says, hey, Bharat, Bharat, Lord Ramachandra's brother, was the first in the line of sandal worshippers. He said, because he wore the Lord's sandals on his head first. He said, when you wear the Lord's sandals on your head, this means that the foot dust of the Lord comes onto your head. And with the foot dust of the Lord, you can distribute this foot dust to your disciples. So then he said, without partiality, the Lord's sandals are on my head, but they're also on the head of the Upanishads. He's using a poetic analogy here. Try and go with me. It's medieval poetry, folks. He says that just the Upanishads are explaining the existence of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Therefore, the Upanishads are at the feet of the Lord. That's the beginning of the conception. When you, when you understand the Upanishads, that's the beginning of the conception of Godhead. So, he said, but those very feet which are on the head of the Upanishads are also on my head. What a wonder. What a wonder that is. Oh, here's a nice one. You'll like this one. He says, one who remains standing after seeing the Lord's sandals will eventually be lowered. If you don't bow down to the Lord's sandals in life, then at the time of death, everybody is lowered. Whether you fall, you lie down, or you have a heart attack, whatever it is, you will fall down on the floor. So better to fall down on the floor while you're alive and bow down to Lord Ram's uh, sandals. He said, but those in this life that lower themselves down to the sandals of Lord Ram, they will be lifted up they will be lifted up. He says, because even the lotus feet of Lord Ramachandra are lifted up by his sandals. <laughs> so he says, how can I explain the greatness of the sandals of Lord Ramachandra? He says, even if all the sky becomes writing paper, 
even if all the seven seas become ink, and even if Ali Shesha himself reads out my poetry. He said, even then, we can't explain the glory of the sandals of Lord Ramachandra. He said, but what is this? The sandals don't smell of Lord Ramachandra. They smell of kornai flowers from the head of Lord Shiva. Why should the sandals of Lord Ramachandra smell of Lord Shiva? Then he says, oh, I know. It's because Lord Shiva's head is always on the sandals of the Lord. He's always bowing down to Lord Ramachandra. It's nice, huh? He says, my dear Lord, he says, your feet remove the curse of Ahalya. He's talking about Lord Ramachandra's feet here. You remove the curse of Ahalya. Your feet turned a stone into a beautiful maiden. Your feet destroyed Shakatasura. Your feet measured the universe in the form of Trivikram, Vamanadev. Your feet brought forth the river Ganges. He said, and your feet, he said, are available to us through the sandals. He said, if you wear the sandals of Ram, you become a great devotee. If you become devoted to the feet of Ram, he said, you become a great devotee. And you too can wear a crescent moon on your head. You too can sit on a lotus flower like Brahma. He said, if you become devoted, completely devoted to the feet of Ram. He said, um, once the shoes of the Lord are on your head, Yamaraj's servants are kept under restraint. <laughs> and they sit there with nothing to do. He said, the lines on your hand, which spell your future. Now, if you're a palm reader, you read the hands. On the, he said, he said, all your, all the lines on your hand read, this person has a golden future. That's what the lines on your hand will say if you can become devoted to. He says, my dear Lord, my dear Lord, your two sandals are your two deputies because they always go in front of you. <laughs> all right, I won't punish you much longer. There's just a few more verses. You've got to get your head around it. He wrote this all in one night, a thousand verses in one night. He lived in Sri Rangam. And uh, just in case you're wondering, uh, this poet was a beloved poet of the uh, uh, of Yankata Bhatta and Gopal Bhatta. Uh, of course, Gopal Bhatta went on to become one of the six Goswamis, and then he wrote the uh, the Hari Bhakti Vilas, and he mentions uh, Vedanta Deshika. So he was he was well known. He was just two hundred years before the time of Lord Chaitanya. Listen to this one. He says, "When your devotees bow their heads with your sandals upon them." All they have to do is reach out just a little bit more and they will touch the spiritual sky. So how is it possible that when you're bowing down so low and you just reach out just an inch or two, you will touch the spiritual sky? Because bowing down at the lotus feet of the Lord enables you to go to the highest place. And this is a secret. One who is the lowest becomes the highest. One who is the highest will eventually become the lowest. See, I know which one I would like. So he says, the mercy of the Lord takes the form of these sandals. Oh, this is very interesting. Okay, just listen to this last bit and then I'll let you go. My dear Lord, your sandals serve as the chains binding the ten wild elephants of my sense organs. <laughs> he says, your sandals 
are the door bolt rod of the door of hell. You slide shut a bolt. A bolt. Okay. Bolt. So your sandals are the bolt that closes the door of hell. And they are the champion of all the prapanas, all the surrendered devotees. He says, you are looking after us as king and your crown is the Lord's feet. So the sandals also have a king and that is the feet, the beautiful feet of the Lord, uh, the crown for the sandals. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, we have, by the courtesy of our head pujari here, Gadadhar Prabhu, we have the Lord's feet on the shatari. And you can go and have that placed on your head at certain times, and you can think of this uh, uh, Paduka Sahasram. This is all the blessings that you get from having the Lord's feet on your head. So, after completing the sacrifice, Lord Ramachandra, whose lotus feet were sometimes pierced by thorns when he lived in Dandakaranya, placed those lotus feet in the hearts of those who always think of him. Then he entered his own abode, the Vaikuntha planet, beyond the Brahma Jyoti. Hare Krishna. Shall I let you go or shall I, would you want to ask a question? Oh, how difficult the choice it is. How difficult. Breakfast or more creeper moya? We don't want to be offensive, but after all, breakfast is prashadam. Prashadam comes from the lotus feet of the Lord. So Kripa Moya has inspired us so much that we want to run and have breakfast very, very quickly. All right. Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. <laughs>